That was great. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone for being here. Very happy to see you. Um, I wrote a book. That's it, and I'd like to talk to you about it. Um, I was advised to start with a joke, so I have one here. <laughs> this is it. Um, he says, am I in the way of this, by the way? Can you see? Okay, great. Everything's perfect. Um, he says, I'm looking forward to the time when I shall make you one of the happiest of women. And she says, you are very kind, sir, but I don't know if my father would allow me to accept a bicycle from you. <laughs> so what's going on here? Well, this is a young woman, obviously, who would rather have a bicycle than a husband. If you know much about the history of the United States during this period, you know that there was a bicycle boom going on during the 1890s. They were very, very popular. It seemed like everyone was riding one. In fact, the next year, 1898, of all the national advertising in this country, 10% was for bicycles or bicycle parts. So they were really kind of inescapable during this period. And as a result, they were very influential on culture during this period. But um, if you look at American history starting from when they arrived here, which was almost exactly 200 years ago, um, and even through the present day, and you look for the influence of the bicycle, you can find it in all kinds of areas of life, um, in the roads and the cars and airplanes, um, in our consumer culture advertising. Um, and that's what my book is about. And I wanted to read you a little part um, from Chapter 3, which, is, as Vernon mentioned, um, has to do with the women and health and the bicycle. Um, but and that it takes place in this period in the 1890s. So I wanted to first give you a little slideshow that takes you um, up to this point, and then read a little from the book. And then if you have questions afterwards, I'd be happy to answer them. So this is a picture of the first um, proto bicycle that arrived in this country um, in 1819. It was invented a couple years earlier in Germany um, by a guy named Baron von Dres, and it's called the Dresine. So this is the first thing that looks, it looks a lot like a bicycle. It has two kind of low wheels and a seat, and you straddle it. It has a handlebar to hold on to. One thing missing is pedals, right? So um, the way that you got around on this was by pushing off the ground, kind of like uh, in a Fred Flintstone sort of a maneuver, which you can see the guy in the back doing, kind of swinging his legs. Um, and this thing was a marvel, a scientific marvel. It was the first uh, device or vehicle that had two wheels in line like this that people had to balance on. Um, and it went fast. It went up to nine miles an hour, which is as fast as a horse can trot. And this was actually the first thing that people had seen that could go that fast on land without being pulled by a horse. Um, it weighed a ton. It weighed like 50 pounds or more. It was made uh, originally of... Um, uh, wrought iron. You know, they made them also out of wood, and but so they went really fast on flat land, really really fast downhill, uphill, not so much. So um, you know they were very heavy. They were very expensive. Um, obviously there weren't factories making them because they were brand new. So you had to hire a blacksmith or someone to make you one. Um, so they were for rich people, and uh, it, it, they when they appeared. They were a fascinating thing, but um, they didn't really 
so there was a kind of a fad. People wanted to rent them or watch people ride them. But they didn't really catch on as something that you could use for transportation because they were heavy, because they couldn't go uphill. And um, especially in this country, because uh, of the roads. The roads in the United States were atrocious. They were mostly not paved. Some of them didn't go anywhere. Um, they, you would have like stumps or trees growing out of them. The ones that were paved were you know, kind of uneven cobblestones, cobblestones missing. So it wasn't um, an environment where a device like this could really take you anywhere that you needed to go. So there was a fad and it kind of died out. But that was the first thing that gave people the idea of balancing and going on two wheels. Something else I wanted to mention to you before uh, I do the reading is how women, particularly middle class and upper class women, dressed during the 19th century and earlier, um, which was in these very long dresses that dragged on the ground with not just the dress that you see, but lots of underskirts and petticoats and pantaloons and chemises. Um, it was a lot of, of fabric and it could weigh up to 25 pounds. So, you know, if you were a woman, and people were smaller back then, so you could be like a woman weighing 100 pounds and be carrying another 25 pounds on your body. So one thing that's important to know when you see a woman who's dressed like this, she's also wearing a garment called a corset, which is an extremely tight um, foundation garment that, that... uh, kind of cinches in your whole waist and that's not just for uh, presentation, not just to make your waist look smaller, it's to undergird all this weighty clothing because the corset allowed the weight of the dress to be kind of distributed along the torso so it wasn't all hanging right from her hips. So um, to dress like this required a very um, a, a, a garment that would keep you from being able to breathe, that would cinch in your waist and, and make you feel weak maybe, make you feel dizzy. Um, and there were people at the time saying, this doesn't make sense, this is not healthy for people, and women shouldn't have to drag their skirts through the mud and have these things that, that um, keep them from breathing and smush their organs. And so people started advocating um, what was called rational dress. Uh, This is a picture of Amelia Bloomer, who was a newspaper editor at the time, and she's wearing uh, something that came to be called the Bloomer costume. She didn't invent it, but she advocated for it. You can see it's it's a modest garment. It's got, you know, it covers her ankles in this kind of blousey fabric, but it has a short skirt over it, so it's not dragging. It doesn't require the the very tight corset. And so she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and several other people started uh, arguing that this is how women should dress during this period in the middle of the 19th century. And they went around around dressed like this and were widely mocked. And um, nobody took this up. So, you know, this was an idea that was rejected by women. They didn't want to uh, be the ones to, you know, be out in the forefront dressing in this way that was considered ridiculous and, um, you know, and, and not uh, proper. And even Amelia Bloomer stopped wearing these after a couple of years because she couldn't get anything done because everyone was laughing at her. So so just just so that you know that, that women were wearing these dresses, it was traditional, and it was something that they they decided to continue wearing through the rest of the 19th century for the most part. 
history happens, yada, yada, yada. In 1866, you get a new development on um, this, the same machine, the Draisine. At the beginning of the 19th century, the Draisine was also called a velocipede in France, which means fast foot. It was considered a running machine. This development in 1866 is called the pedal velocipede. Looks like the old velocipede, but it has pedals on the front axle. So this is now another scientific marvel. This, this machine would be made with wooden wheels, like wagon wheels. The top of it, where you sit, is, is wrought iron. Um, but uh, this uh, inspired another fad, both here and in Europe, because once again, this was something that was tremendously fast, um, again, about nine miles an hour. Uh, but now people really couldn't understand mechanically how it could possibly work, because you can go as far as you can go until you fall over without touching the ground. And the faster you go, the more stable the machine is. So there literally was a story in Scientific American about what a mystery it was, how this device could possibly work. Um, in Europe, there was a big velocipede mania. Here, also in 1869, there was one. At, it, during Over the winter, people um, wanted to learn how to ride them. I have a picture of that. This is a velocipede riding school in New York, because think about it, you know, this is a population of adults who don't know how to ride bicycles, so they had to learn. And entrepreneurs um, opened these schools indoors because it was winter to teach people how to ride, um, and, and these are pictures of them falling over, which you could also go and do. You could rent a, a velocipede to learn, you could hire a teacher, or you could just go sit in the gallery and laugh at people, which was also a popular amusement. Um, these devices were still very expensive. Um, they cost about $100 at a time. And right, This is right after the Civil War when, at the end of the war, a Union soldier made $13 a month. So $100 was a lot of money. Um, but again, you could rent one if you couldn't buy one. And uh, these, these were extremely popular, and people had the idea that as soon as it warmed up, when it became spring, they would take them on the roads. They'd learn indoors how to ride them, and then they would go off on their adventures and race them. But it didn't work that way because of the the condition of the American roads was no better than it had been at the beginning of the century. In some ways, it was worse because early in the 19th century, there were private turnpikes that had kind of fallen into disrepair when the railroads were built and when canals were built. So you could learn to ride this bicycle, this velocipede, indoors, and it was started to be called a bicycle at this point, which was a bicycle, two circles, two wheels. Um, but then in this country, you didn't really have anywhere to go. Now, in Europe, in France and in England, where the roads were better paved, they continued to develop this technology. And one of the signal inventions that they made was what was called the spider wheel which is a technology that you'll recognize. It was a wire-spoke, under-tension wheel, which is pretty much what we have now. This allowed them to make the wheels bigger because they knew that if you make a wheel bigger, it'll go farther for each time you crank the pedals, so you can ride it faster. But if it's a wooden wheel, you can't make it that much bigger because it's too heavy for someone to crank. So when they invented the spider wheel, they could enlarge these. This um, looks to us now like a quaint machine for you know someone to some dandy and tweed to ride. But at the time, it was a very very high tech machine. It was like a Formula One race car. Um, 
And this was popular. This 1879 picture that I'm showing you now is from the first American bicycle manual. Um, and this guy actually was uh, a leader in the, the League of American Wheelmen, which was a coalition of bicycle clubs. Um, so this machine um, was very fast. It was still expensive. So um, wages are going up some. So in this era, a, a worker might make 6 or $7 a week. But these still cost $100, 90 or $100. So it's still something for rich people. Something else to know about this machine is that because the arch of the wheel, because it's so big, the arch of the wheel is gentler, uh, it was able to go on worse roads. It was able to go on American roads to a certain extent because the little dips that might have ca caught a smaller wheel, this thing can just kind of uh, roll over. Um, and so this was actually the first bicycle that was uh, uh, road-worthy in the United States, so people would actually take it outdoors. Another thing that's important to know about this bicycle is very dangerous because you're all, your weight, the whole weight of your body is over the top of the wheel, and so it's very easy if the bicycle does catch on something to just fly over the top and hit your head. That's called taking a header, and that was quite common for people who rode these kind of bikes. It was a um, head injuries were a big problem, but people still rode them. People who were rich and strong and male <laughs> because women really couldn't ride these in the traditional dresses. This woman is um, riding side saddles. You can see she's got the long skirts on. You can also see she's kind of looking. This is a magazine story. She's looking longingly at the man. But what was happening was that women were looking longingly at the bicycle because they heard that it was fast and it was fun. It was awesome. And they wanted to be able to ride it. And so um, manufacturers started learn looking for ways to allow women to ride these bikes in these long garments and what they came up with was the crazy tricycle. So this tricycle, it has the two big spider wheels. It's got a bench connecting them and then a little wheel that would be either in the front or in the back and then treadles or, or cranks um, to, to run it. This was also expensive, about one and a half times the, the price of a tall bicycle. So these were also wealthy people. Um, it went reasonably fast. There was a, a, a mania for these in England where the roads were better. Here, it, there was a problem with them because it, you might be able to find one smooth track for a big bicycle, but if you have a tricycle, you need three, right? You need one for each wheel, and they're not in line. So a lot of the problem with these was that they were very heavy, and they tended to tip over. So if it's you're a lady and you're out there and you've got this corset on and this thing tips over, you're kind of out of luck. Um, so some people bought these. These were great, but there was still a need for something else. And the something else was the safety bicycle, which was invented in 1885 in England. And this is the first American one I'm showing you, the Victor Safety. Um, the, the technology here, the new technology here is the chain. So there's a chain attached to the rear wheel, which becomes the driving wheel and a sprocket. This allows the wheel to turn more than once for every time that you crank the pedals. So this is also is a racing machine. It's a very fast machine. It can go as fast as those big ones and even faster, but it brings it lower to the ground. And what that allowed was people to start to uh, want to ride it, even if they didn't have the strength to get up on the big bikes. Because in order to ride one of those big bikes, you had to um, 
get it going, run alongside it, and then kind of climb up the back of it while it was going without tipping over. And then, remember, it's a fixie. There's no chain. There's no freewheel. So the pedals are spinning. And so once you're sitting on it, then you have to get your feet on the pedals. And it's going like 15 miles an hour. So it was, it was pretty dramatic. But once it comes down lower... Then it becomes something that, you know, if you if you have to tip over, your foot is right there next to the ground. However, we come back to the problem of the small wheels on the American roads. And the thing that solved that problem was the pneumatic tire. This is the air-filled tire that we're familiar with. Um, it was invented in 1888 um, by a Scottish dentist in Ireland. It came over here shortly thereafter. This is an early American one, and you can see um, it's got the, the pneumatic tire, which cushions the road. So you can ru- drive fast, and you can tolerate some of the bumps. Um, the, fun fact, the, the first pneumatic tires were white. Rubber tires were white. That's why the um, Michelin Man is white because he was a stack of bicycle tires and then eventually got fatter and became a stack of of, uh, car tires, but he stayed white. Anyway, so you have all these technologies. Um, The pneumatic tire, you have the the chain, you have the lower... uh, the lower profile and the only thing missing then for a woman to be able to ride this would be a, a scooping down scooping down the, that top bar so that she doesn't have to straddle that with her skirts and when that happens yeah no no I just I just want to show you when that happens um, this is what you get you get this lady so this might be someone who would rather have a bicycle than a husband, right? And what is she wearing? She's wearing a bloomer costume. So this, um, this costume, it's, it comes into a kind of fashion, and it's not because a lot had changed in women's clothing or comportment over the previous 40 years. Um, what, this was still a ridiculous costume. It was embarrassing and it was mocked. But now women were willing to accept the mockery because they wanted to ride a bicycle. And the reason they wanted to ride a bicycle so badly was because it gave them a kind of freedom and mobility that they had never had before. It wasn't just that it was super fun to ride and made them feel like flying, which of course it did. Um, but if you were a woman at the, in this period, if you were very wealthy, you might have access to uh, a horse and carriage um, that you could use with your husband's permission or your father's permission with a driver. Um, or if you wanted to go somewhere on foot, you would go with somebody else with a chaperone, which is an, like an older lady relative. Um, but you couldn't go where you wanted Um, and you couldn't go very far uh, independently. With a bicycle, you could. Um, Even though when they first came in, people were saying, well, if a woman is going to ride a bicycle, she should have a chaperone. And that turned out not to stick because the chaperones couldn't ride bicycles. So (laughs) you could get away from them pretty easily. And after a while, it was just not expected that a woman would necessarily be accompanied on a bicycle. So, So this woman is... Um, very challenging and threatening to the social order, not only because she is revealing the shape of her calves, but because she has this machine and she's able to go where she wants to go. And this was very frightening to some people, and that's that's the setup for the part of the book that I'd like to read to you. And it starts in um, 1896 with this headline. Bicycling, very immoral. 
Hollist warned that skimpy costumes and unsupervised travel would lead to wanton behavior. Immodest bicycling by young women is to be deplored, declared Charlotte Smith, founder of the Women's Rescue League, a group that lobbied Congress on behalf of fallen women. Bicycling by young women has helped to swell the ranks of reckless girls who finally drift into the standing army of outcast women. Smith reported that her tours of brothels and interviews with prostitutes confirmed this. Physicians, who at the time shouldered responsibility for patients' moral as well as physical well-being, had their own concerns. One visited New York's Coney Island and saw a 16-year-old cyclist get drunk on wine provided by a beautiful but nefarious older woman. She looked like an innocent child but was away from home influence, the doctor reported. And there's a passage here. I'm just going to paraphrase because it's public. But um, doctors uh, were concerned that the pressure from the bicycle seat would give teenagers ideas about a certain uh, solitary practice that um, <laughs> that was considered to be dangerous to their spiritual well-being that, and that the doctors thought that without this pressure, this practice would not occur to them. Um, so back to the book. The, the bicycle's peril was medical as well as moral. In the late 19th century, many saw physical energy as a finite resource that had to be carefully parceled out, not a power that could be renewed through exercise. The fashionable malaise of neurasthenia was only one of the disorders thought to be caused by a depletion of energies. Overexertion could also cause tuberculosis, scoliosis, hernias, heart disease, and other maladies, doctors believed. Safely sedentary middle-class women, who frequently suffered from varicose veins and other consequences of annual pregnancies, were prone to fatigue. One Boston writer called them a sex which is born tired, adding that society sometimes seems little better than a hospital for invalid women. Particularly for women in heavy dresses and constricting corsets, any activity that raised the heart rate could seem more likely to be the cause of fainting and listlessness than their remedy. Opponents of the bicycle latched onto this perception, arguing that riding would cost women more effort than they could afford. The exertion necessary to riding with speed is productive of an excitation of nervous and physical energy that is anything but beneficial, Charlotte Smith warned. If a halt is not called soon, 75% of the cyclists will be an army of invalids within the next 10 years. But even as Smith made her dire predictions, Americans' fears of cardiovascular exercise were beginning to lift. For decades, health reformers had trumpeted the benefits of fitness, and during the 1880s, the United States saw a spike in organized physical activity. Citizens of America's growing cities tried new sports such as baseball and football, and exercise advocates built the first public playgrounds and pushed for physical education for both boys and girls. Doctors continued to caution against overexertion, but they acknowledged that in moderation, fresh air and exercise tended to improve patients' health. The high-wheel bicycle of the 1880s proved the benefits of regular exercise to those who could ride it. Proponents made extravagant claims for the risky machine's ability to restore well-being. For constipation, sleeplessness, dyspepsia, and many other ills which flesh's heir to, not to speak of melancholy, all are curable or certainly to be improved by the new remedy, bicycle wrote a Texas physician in 1883. It is always an excellent prescription for the convalescents and nearly always for chronic invalids. Not everyone could take the prescription, though. 
High-wheeled cycling and rigorous team sports were acceptable only for young men. The new games deemed suitable for mixed company, such as lawn tennis and golf, were far less taxing and therefore far less likely to lead to noticeable improvements in fitness. As for working out on your own, the recommended options were either too costly, like horseback riding, or too boring, like indoor calisthenics, to gain much popularity. As a result, many Americans of the 1880s thought they ought to exercise, but few of them did it. And here I just wanted to show you, um, this is a, from an 1889 exercise manual, so you can see, you know, they're thinking about it, but we're not talking about CrossFit here. <laughs> So when the safety bicycle appeared at the end of the decade and Americans began riding in large numbers, an estimated 2 million by 1896 out of a population of about 70 million, few were certain how such vigorous physical activity would affect them. Doctors were wary. Most U.S. physicians believed that each patient's condition was based largely on his or her habits and experiences, the weather, and other environmental factors. Good health was a reflection of proper balance among the body's systems and energies. A distracted mind could curdle the stomach. A dyspeptic stomach could agitate the mind, writes the historian Charles Rosenberg. It was a doctor's job to know each patient well enough to restore balance when something was out of whack, using laxatives, diuretics, and other purging drugs to reboot the system. Even contagious diseases could not be treated in a cookie-cutter fashion, argued an 1883 medical journal editorial. No two instances of typhoid fever or of any other disease are precisely alike. No rule of thumb, no recourse to a formula book will avail for proper treatment, even of the typical diseases. To many doctors, advocating a specific drug to cure a specific disease seemed the height of quackery. And just as there were no one-size-fits-all medical treatments, many physicians believed there were no one-size-fits-all exercise routines. While cycling enthusiasts rhapsodized about the safety bicycle's benefits for riders of both sexes and all ages, doctors fretted that many of their patients would be harmed by the new machines. Even seeming success stories were suspect. In an 1895 paper on heart disease, one doctor reported that a patient who had panted for breath after climbing one flight of stairs was now able to cycle up hills with ease. It would be wrong to conclude from this that cycling is not injurious, the doctor wrote. There hadn't been enough time to observe the bicycle's long-term effects. Moreover, as an unfamiliar activity, cycling tended to catch the blame for pretty much anything bad that happened to a new rider afterward, up to and including death. Logically, acute injuries were a concern. Though the safety bicycle did greatly reduce the risk of head wounds, it didn't obliterate that risk, particularly among scorchers, thrill-seeking youngsters, youngsters who hunched over their handlebars and pedaled as fast as they could. And I've got a picture of them. This is a scorcher. This is the unrestrained demon of the wheel from an 1893 uh, news, uh, magazine article. It might seem almost impossible to fracture a skull thick enough to permit indulgence in such practices, reported the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, but the bicycle at full speed has been able to accomplish it. Medical journals also noted the danger of road rash and broken bones. More insidious than crash injuries, though, were new chronic complaints attributed to cycling. The bent-over posture of the scorcher was thought to cause a permanent hunch called kyphosis bicyclisterum, or familiarly, cyclist stoop. Repeated stress to the cardiovascular system, that is, regular workouts, could lead to the irregular heartbeats and poor circulation of bicycle heart. Gripping the handlebars too tightly might cause finger numbness or bicycle hand, and the dusty ride could trigger cyclist sore throat. 
Practically every body part seemed to have its own psycho-related malady. At least one New York doctor devoted his entire practice to treating such ailments. Of all the physical woes attributed to the bike, the one that most strained credulity was the bicycle face. So I'm just going to bring this guy in a little closer. Maybe just a little closer than that. There he is. Characterized by wide, wild eyes, a grim set to the mouth, and a migration of facial features toward the center, the disorder was said to result from the stress of incessant balancing. A German philosopher claimed that the condition drained every vestige of intelligence from the sufferer's appearance and rendered children unrecognizable to their own mothers. The bicycle face hung on, too, warned a journalist. Once fixed upon the countenance, it can never be removed. The doctors raising these alarms were careful to state that many of the new diseases affected only cyclists predisposed to them, which would explain why so few of their fellow physicians might have encountered the disorders. Whilst thousands ride immune, a small percentage will suffer, wrote one doctor. Another, who blamed cases of appendicitis, inflammatory bowel disease, and the thyroid condition Graves' disease on excessive cycling, said it didn't matter how many people believed that cycling had improved their health. It would not affect my argument in the least if swarms of them had been rescued from the grave. This is an 1896 uh, magazine cover. Uh, It was a sporting magazine that devoted its entire issue to cycling. And you can see from the way this woman is riding that people's experience of cycling at this time was much more joyous than what the doctors were fearing. Nevertheless, the more Americans took to bicycling, the more tenuous these claims of danger came to seem. The bicycle made physical activity both practical and fun. The bicycle was inducing multitudes of people to take regular exercise who had long been in need of such exercise, but who could never be induced to take it by any means hitherto devised, one doctor wrote in Harper's Weekly in 1896. And all that activity had an effect. Writers quickly noted improved muscle tone, increased strength, better sleep, and brighter moods. Women especially transformed themselves, wrote the novelist Maurice Thompson in 1897. We have already become accustomed to seeing sun-brown faces, once sallow and languid, whisk past us at every turn of the street. The magnetism of vivid health has overcome conservative barriers that were impregnable to every other force. The empirical evidence of cycling's health value began to take overtake conservative doctors' concerns, as the rhetoric scholar Sarah Overbaugh Hallenbach argues. Though many physicians continued to raise objections to the sport, their voices were increasingly drowned out by those of more observant and pragmatic practitioners. The bicycle face, elbow, back, shoulders, neck, eroticism, wrote one military doctor in 1896, I pass as not worthy of serious consideration. Rather than discourage bicycle use, most physicians came to cautiously endorse it. So long as a cyclist can breathe with the mouth shut, wrote one such doctor in 1898, in, uh, sorry, 1895, he is certainly perfectly safe. Some went further, citing evidence of the bike's benefits for heart patients, migraine sufferers, diabetics, and others with chronic conditions. In Chicago, the demand for injectable morphine dropped as patients with anxiety or insomnia discovered that a spin in the fresh air on a cycle induces sweet sleep better than their favorite drug, the Bulletin of Pharmacy reported. And I think I'll end it there. Um, Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com.
Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.